0: Welcome to Radio Tamboa, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. My reflections examine what I refer to as the theological significance of the prosperity gospel. Which has come to define the Christianity of certain contemporary Pentecostal movements. Classical Pentecostalism, with its theological distinctive of Christ as Savior, baptizer in the Spirit, healer, and a King who is soon to return, had a very evangelical and missionary orientation on account of the fourth belief in particular. When classical Pentecostalism started, there was a very strong belief that Jesus was coming again very soon. And so it led the movement to develop a very strong evangelical orientation. Missionaries from the 1906 Azusa Street Revival, under the leadership of William Seymour, traveled across the seas, and risked their lives in the course of the gospel, because they believed that the message had to reach every corner of the earth before the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ has tarried, and the Pentecostal movement has manifested in many different forms. Today, we not only have classical Pentecostal denominations, such as the Assemblies of God, but also many neo Pentecostal churches and movements that have spread across Africa. In your own country, Uganda, the new independent and founder led charismatic churches have blossomed since the days of the Balokoli revivals. I have heard of the Namirembe Christian Fellowship, the Rubaga Miracle Center, El Shaddai Ministries, the Kampala Pentecostal Church, the Redeemed Church of Christ, Prayer Place Center, Victory Christian Center, the Church on the Rock, Abundant Life, and many others that have spread all over Kampala and beyond. The Dio Pentecostal Churches and Ministries listed above have on the whole been able to establish very successful organizations that have initiated a paradigm shift from the dry denominationalism associated with the historic mission denominations with their often staid, silent, and liturgically formal services. In many cases, their success are uh, to be applauded and seen as the work of the Holy Spirit, who alone is able to bring people from nowhere and take them somewhere and turn nobodies into somebody's. The testimonies of transformation, Holy Spirit infilling, and church growth are incredible and have the handiwork of the Spirit all over them. All the founders of these churches are local charismatic pastors whose churches display some of the following characteristics. An attraction for the upwardly mobile youth, a well-educated leadership, mega-sized congregations, internationalism, innovative uses of modern media technologies, a very dynamic, fashion-conscious, exuberant and expressive worship Format accompanied by modern instruments and high amperage music, and of course, messages of prosperity and success. The promises of success, breakthroughs, wealth, health, and general prosperity are often linked to the faithful payment of tithes and offerings. Some even preach that to receive your blessing, you must sow into the life of the man of God. One leading Ugandan pastor is quoted as saying, Whenever you meet a prophet, you should not meet him empty handed. Because usually something happens. The pastor in question preached that you cannot give to a prophet and become poor. God will never decrease your supply, He will increase it. This exposition was obviously based on the encounter between Elijah. And the widow of Zarephath. I will argue here that these messages can be inspiring for those looking for meaning in their lives, and who are tired of hearing that things would get better only in heaven. However, the message of prosperity can also be damaging to those many who who fulfill all their conditions, all the conditions required such as the faithful payment of tithe and offerings, without getting the promised results. Explanations of the failure to see material prosperity in terms of lack of faith, or unconfessed sin, or in terms of the activities of witches and demons in a person's family, are inadequate and inappropriate and have led to so much pain, suffering, schism, Within these churches. The designation word of faith is linked to the contemporary stream of, Christi- of Pentecostalism and is the movement's general belief that the spoken word has what I call a performance effect, meaning that whatever a believer confesses will come to pass. This teaching was popularized by numerous North American televangelists who were aided in Africa by Archbishop Benzli Dahosa of Nigeria and Archbishop Nicholas Duncan williams of Ghana, both of whom spread the stream of Pentecostalism across the continent. The basic message of Archbishop Duncan williams at the beginning of his ministry was simple. God has given to the saints redeemed power, authority, glory, blessings, prosperity, health, and peace in this life on earth. Salvation in Christ, he notes, is just the door which will lead you on a journey of faith to the land of glory. The way to exercise this faith is to build it up on the word of God and to begin to confess it. In the words of Duncan Williams, nurture the word in your spirit Nourish it daily by confession, according to the scriptures, and it will come to pass. In his autobiography, Destined to Succeed, then can Williams describe faith as the master key for us into all God has for mankind. His conviction is that faith will always find a way out, for although God is no respecter of persons, he is a respecter of faith then can Williams declare in the book that prosperity, divine health, peace, joy and fulfillment are not optional blessings. In other words, every single Christian is expected to be an embodiment of these things based on the profession of the word by faith and the payment of tithes and offerings. Even in your impoverished condition, then can Williams write, God still needs something from you to bless you. In all truth, he notes elsewhere in the book, God is the most successful being in the universe. He is the only one who has never had to cut back, lay off people off, take out a loan or lease, and has never rented anything. God is successful. Our church is not called Christian Action Faith Ministries for the fun of it, he states. I have led the people by His grace through Christian action. We have acted on God's word. All these may be true and part of the testimony of the Archbishop Duncan Williams and his church. But where do those who have not prospered fit into this theology? That is the theological question that confronts us. Based on selected passages of scripture... Some within the new Pentecostal movement have come to believe that the authority of the believer granted by belief in Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit means one can confess or claim any desire and make it happen. Thus, for example, in one church, worshippers were instructed to hold their offerings in their hands and say the following prayer. Offering. I am sending you into the offering bowl. Come back to me in dollars, in pounds sterling, in euros, and in yen. This theology of naming and claiming is made possible through the Holy Spirit anointing, which gives a certain performance effect to the words of believers as they speak. For the purposes of these reflections, I place the Word of Faith movement within the neo-Pentecostal or charismatic stream of Pentecostalism. Charismatic churches, as they are popularly called in West African countries like Ghana, are younger than the classical Pentecostal churches, and they have embraced a prosperity theology that has not been part of the traditional Pentecostal movement. It is not being suggested in this presentation that every single one of the new Pentecostal church preaches particular prosperity the same way, but generally, significant numbers of them have adopted this message to the point where the prosperity gospel has virtually become part of the African charismatic self-definition. Those familiar with these new churches have certainly heard some of the following declarations made at church meetings, prayer vigils, summits and conventions. You shall be the head and not the tail. You are coming out of poverty. I see some of you in London, Paris, Amsterdam, New York. With the eye of the Spirit, I see your garage full of luxurious cars. (laughs) You will live in your own house. You will establish your own business. Those who are laughing at you today, they will promote you tomorrow. Because the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. For this is what the Bible says. One person summarized these charismatic church declarations into a simple statement on a car bumper sticker. Prosperity is by choice. The media, in both its print and electronic forms, has played a major role in the spread and importance of this new type of Pentecostalism. Through satellite television, church practices in the Western world, are visible to pastors in the non-Western world, and charismatic leaders in Africa often copy their North American counterparts, including their celebrity lifestyles, even though that standard of living may not necessarily be biblical. In Deuteronomy 28, the Bible catalogs a number of blessings that Israel was to enjoy if the nation lived in obedience to God. Disobedience was also to be followed by a number of cases and catastrophes. Whatever this passage meant to its original hearers, it includes the fact that God's salvation will include physical and material prosperity. In the thinking of the new streams of African Christianity, especially within the Pentecostalism, this text has been reinterpreted to apply not simply to health and peace, but to include the modern science of material well-being, including those things that are representative of lifestyles of conspicuous consumerism. Thus the prosperity gospel, where the faith gospel, or name it and claim it message, describes how these charismatics approach the Bible. According to this faith gospel, as noted by Paul Gifford, my good friend of mine, God has met all the needs of human beings in the suffering and death of Christ, and every Christian should now share the victory of Christ over sin, sickness, and poverty. One implication of this, Gifford continues, is that a believer has a right to the blessings of health and wealth won by Christ, and he or she can obtain these blessings merely by a positive confession of faith. It is this element of the positive confession of faith That gave rise to the designation of the movement as word of faith. In this type of Christianity, spoken words tend to have a performance effect. And so prayer tends to encompass a series of confessions or claims made on God either to supply the things that make for prosperity in this life or else to deal with those evil powers who make it impossible for people to prosper. In my thinking and writing, I usually make a close connection or draw a close connection between prosperity preaching and the rise of the healing and deliverance movement. Because if you preach material prosperity over time and it's not happening, you have to have a reason why it is not happening. And usually the answer is located in the areas of witchcraft and demons. And so it gives rise to to ministries, that also specialize in deliverance, so that people will prosper. I'm not suggesting that healing and deliverance ministries are not genuine, but my point is that the rise of the Word of Faith movement, at least in Africa, has given rise to the multiplication of healing and deliverance ministries, so that it can respond to the shortfalls in prosperity. In this room of Christianity... God wants all Christians to prosper in both physical and material terms. And so houses, cars, successful businesses, international travel are seen as signs of God's favor upon particular persons and are considered the fruit of genuine Christianity. Prosperity gospel, as I have come to understand it, is the teaching, as I have said, that once in Christ, God makes available to the Christian certain spiritual and material blessings. What I am responding to in this presentation is not so much the idea that material things are wrong, but extravagance, and what I referred to earlier as conspicuous consumption in the name of God's blessing, is something that Jesus preaches against. Those who expound this type of Christian prosperity also teach that poverty results from curses and faithfulness, sinfulness, or failure to fulfill tithing obligations towards God. With specific reference to pastors in particular, some have even taught that a pastor should be as wealthy as the wealthiest member of his congregation. This statement has been attributed to a former apostle of prosperity teaching, Jim Baker, of the PTO club. The teachers of the prosperity gospel justify their position along three main lines. First, that the Bible teaches it. Second, that Jesus lived it. Some even claim that the donkey on which he rode to Jerusalem was the Mercedes-Benz of the day. And that um, the fact that the robe of Jesus was seamless means that It was a designer role. And third, that God willed it and faith makes it possible. Now, I'd like to explain that prosperity is not alien to African religion and culture. Because in African religion, prayer is usually directed at health, at longevity, vitality and abundance. And in West Africa in particular, the concluding segment of libation prayer is usually reserved for curses upon the powers of evil. That is, those seen and unseen powers who make abundant life difficult. Second, material blessings and spiritual well-being are also not alien to scripture. And I have made a point that in many cases the Old Testament, when God blesses people, they also have material things to show for it. But prosperity in biblical terms is not defined solely in terms of material things. Third, prosperity is not alien to the experiences of Christians today. We can identify so many people around us who are genuine believers in God and who have come to wealth and who use their wealth to support good causes. In the papers that you have, I have listed a number of the names associated with this gospel. I'm not going to go back to those names. But I have very intentionally used the story of Jim Baker because in his heydays as a leading exponent of the prosperity gospel a lot of African preachers learned from him. And in the paper the version of the paper that I have I have drawn some similarities between Jim Baker and the the Judge Samson of the Old Testament. That these were people to whom God gave powerful ministries. But the choices they made in life made sure that they lost the graces that God has given them and brought shame to the gospel. Jim Baker writes in his book that as PTL grew larger, so did the rift in his marriage to Tammy Baker. Most of our argument centred around my obsession to build Heritage USA. As he confesses in that book, he was so obsessed with building something that reflects prosperity that the project became his mistress to the neglect of his marriage. He eventually entered into an adulterous relationship. And these days I call attention to all the prosperity preachers and how a number of them have um, falling into adulterous relationships or have had their marriages uh, fall on rocks. Off the top of my head, I can talk about Jim Baker who lost his marriage while he was in prison. In South Africa, we can talk about Ray McCauley. In Ghana, we can talk about Duncan Williams, and so on and so forth. You know, So, um, these developments draw our attention to the fact that Even for the apostles of prosperity, the thing hasn't worked for them. Because if it has worked for them, their marriages should not suffer the way they have suffered. Now, some of you may be familiar with the Jim Baker story. This is a man who was obsessed with prosperity. In the end, he landed in prison and he was charged by the federal government for fraud. And just after he was released from prison is when he wrote the book, I Was Wrong. And I am quoting from page 3 of that book, I Was Wrong. He says, much of the case, that is when he was sent to court, much of the case revolved around my lifestyle. The government took three weeks to build their case against me calling 91 witnesses, 22 of whom did not even speak to the issue of fraud, but were apparently on the stand simply because I had made an extravagant purchase from them. In other words, when people heard that Jim Baker had been taken to court, they, the people who sold things to him were so astonished by how much money he had paid to them that he came to court to say that, to witness that this man had bought something from us with funds that were mind-boggling, things like that. So like Samson, Baker became an object of scorn when the prosperity preacher found himself in the dock before a secular judge who noted about Baker. He had no thought whatever about his victims, and those of us who are by religion are ridiculed as being saps from money-grabbing preachers or preachers. During his incarceration, his wife divorced him and married a family friend. In the introduction to the book, Jim Baker makes the following confession, and I'd like to read his confession to you. He says, For most of my life, I believed that my understanding of God and how He wants us to live was not only correct, but worth exporting to the world. One reason I have risked putting my heart into print is to tell you that my previous philosophy of life, out of which my attitudes and actions flowed, was fundamentally flawed. God does not promise that we will be rich and prosperous, as I once preached. When I really studied the Bible while in prison, It became clear to me that not one man or woman, not even prophet of God, led a life without pain. God does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, no matter what trial or pain we must go through. Whether it be loss of reputation, loss of position or power, financial calamity, addiction, separation, divorce or imprisonment. Jim Baker has written a sequel to this book, I Was Wrong, which is titled Prosperity and the Coming Apocalypse. We applaud his efforts, but the question remains whether anybody is listening to what he is saying. For in the previous book, Baker noted that the mistakes he made are still being perpetuated by ministries, churches, businesses, marriages, and families. The temptation to have more, do more, and more Build bigger. Emphasize material things rather than spiritual. Protect the image regardless of the cost. Look the other way rather than confront wrong. These are just a few of the areas in which I have a new mindset. That is Jim Baker. In the new book, Prosperity and the Coming Apocalypse, Baker poses the following fundamental questions for reflection. Rarely does anyone talk about sacrifice. Repentance of sin, or our failure to be what God has called us to be? What was the last time you heard someone preach on the judgment of God, or the horrors of hell? How often have you heard a message encouraging Christians to bear one another's burdens? So the question is, after all this, why has prosperity theology become a contentious issue? My first answer is that prosperity theology, the word of faith gospel, has a hermeneutical problem, the way it interprets scripture. And I have used just one passage to demonstrate how it misinterprets scripture. I have heard a lot of pastors preach from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, this particular passage, especially the line, The Blessing of Abraham, It's always, any time I have heard it, it's interpreted to mean that because Abraham was rich in cattle and gold and silver, therefore those who inherit the blessing of Abraham will be rich. That's how it is interpreted. But one of the principles of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics is that you try and interpret the scripture within its context. If you don't do that, you will end up doing what is called proof texting. In other other words, you have a stand on an issue. And then you go to the Bible and look for passages to support your stand. Now, in this particular book, Galatians, as you know, Paul wrote Galatians to respond to the Gentile question. Because the Jewish Christians were finding it very difficult to admit the Gentiles into full fellowship. You remember that even Peter at the house of Cornelius had a problem accepting the Gentiles until he saw that vision. So God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius in order to show him that the Gentiles can also be accepted. That's why in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 and 35 Peter can say now I know That God is no respecter of persons. And so when in Galatians chapter 1, Peter was turning away from the Gentiles. Paul had to reprimand him. That Peter, it is you who saw that vision. The vision of inclusion. You were part of the council of Jerusalem. So why should you turn your back on the Gentiles? Because you are not circumcised. And so it was a big issue for Paul. And Paul tried to use the book of Galatians to respond to that question. And so in Galatians chapter 3 verse 14, he makes reference to the blessing of Abraham. Why does he make reference to the blessing of Abraham? Because when God called Abraham, God changed his name from Abraham to Abraham, meaning father of nations. So those who inherit the blessing of Abraham have become part of the covenant people of God. And that is the same statement that the Holy Spirit made on the day of Pentecost. I tell my students that the things in the Bible are not written to decorate the paper. (laughs) So on the day of Pentecost, when Luke was writing in Acts, he very intentionally did not say when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles. so many people came. He went ahead to list the nations. And if you read that passage very clearly, carefully, you'll find that Rome is listed. Spain is listed. It means people came from Europe. The Arabs are listed. Alright? Africa too is listed. Egypt is listed over there. Libya is listed over there. In order to make the point... That we have all from all the nations become part of the covenant people of God by the Spirit. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, Galatians chapter 3, In order that in Christ, Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is by the promise of the Spirit that we are included as part of the covenant people of God. Now, so if you take that line out of context, then you will preach that the blessing of Abraham means his legacy of wealth and physical things and so on. But it has nothing to do with that. That's what I mean by proof texting. Taking the Bible out of context and making it say what you want to say and not what God wants to tell his people. My second point then flows from the first is that the prosperity message tends to be one-sided. Why is it one-sided? It is one-sided because it only addresses those who are making it in this life. But there may be so many people in the church who are going through suffering and pain, and we don't seem to have any message for them. But these are the people that Jesus associated with most. The poor the downtrodden, and the marginalized. And a lot of the parables he told, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, was precisely to make the point that we should pay attention to those who are suffering in society. The third is that the prosperity gospel tends to be too materialistic. And uh, when we arrived in the afternoon, I try to make a distinction between material things and being materialistic in life. To be materialistic is to pursue what the Bible Jesus calls mammon, And that is considered to be sin. It doesn't mean that material things are wrong. But to make them ends in themselves and make them the sole indicators of God's favor and use the Bible to support your materialistic lifestyle is to use the Bible wrongly. But is there biblical prosperity? I've stated in the outline you have that yes, there is biblical prosperity. For example, when you read the story of Mary who became the mother of Jesus. From now all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has filled the hungry with good things. But the rich... They are sent empty away. The rich in this context are like the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray and decided to present his CV to God. He was sent empty away. So biblical prosperity has to do very much with the fulfillment of God's purposes in your life. You enter into a relationship with Christ and experience the abundance of life that he promises in John chapter 10. Verse 10. And that very much is the same as the Hebrew Shalom, where prosperity does not necessarily mean just having material needs, but being at peace with God and living a life of fulfillment. How do we deal with the problems arising out of the Word of Faith gospel? My first recommendation is that you must preach a holistic gospel that prepares the materially rich to acknowledge God and the materially poor not to feel cursed or neglected by God. And riches must be used responsibly. And those who are struggling must learn to take the opportunities around them and eschew laziness and overdependence on others. A holistic gospel is one in which the existential and eschatological dimensions of the faith are seen as continuous with each other. It is Jesus who warned against the accumulation of material wealth and dependence of overdependence upon them. The reason he gave is, is important, that our heritage is in the realms above. So God has called us to take opportunities in this life, but we must not neglect those aspects of the gospel that also talk about judgment. In preaching, we need to do Christological hermeneutics Here Christ becomes our standard. And the place to focus on is the cross on which he died. Paul says, I seek to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Number four, recognize that redemptive uplift is part of the Christian experience. That when we are redeemed, God also lifts us up. And sometimes there is nothing magical about prosperity I have heard and seen people who used to lead reckless lifestyles. Some of them were drunkards. Merely by stopping drinking or giving up a life of junkiness, they are able to save money for constructive purposes. So you see change in their lives merely by coming to Christ. Teach your people that life is not from a lake. That's my fifth point. That life is not necessarily a formula. In other words, you give 1,000 to God and God gives you 10,000. It doesn't work like that. Life as Christians works based on the grace of God. Jesus was balanced and we must follow his example. The gospel of Jesus Christ must have something to say both to the rich and to the poor. I spoke about prosperity gospel somewhere and I told them that as pastor sometimes you go to church as you sit here there may be one group here on my right in the same church who have come to thank God because somebody is celebrating a promotion at work and they will come with their family all dressed in white they will give an offering to thank God and then during the service I'm expected to say something to them That their family is doing well, and things are going well, and they have received promotion. But on my left, there will also be a family in black, because they have lost a dear one. They have also come to give a thank offering. When I stand here to preach, I must have a word, both for those who are rejoicing, and for those who are mourning. That is the gospel, not a sermon that is tailored for those who are doing well, and the rich and the poor and the suffering ask what is in this message for us. So Jesus was balanced. My conclusion. In my presentation, I cited experience as an important source of theology. We do not just have to listen to those who claim to have prospered materially by God, but we must also listen to those who have preached a gospel of materialism and have learned by experience That it was wrong. Jim Baker is one of such people. In other words, for the average church member, it is important to associate with those who have made it, but even more important to learn from the experiences of those who have failed. The title of my presentation is deliberately chosen because, as we have seen, those who preach the gospel of prosperity appeal strongly to the Bible for support. The Bible is God's eternal word. And preachers must be careful not to interpret it in the light of what they believe. What God wants us to hear and what we want others to hear are not necessarily the same. The Pentecostal New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, is a major critic of the prosperity gospel. He describes it as a curious theology indeed, given the nature of the incarnation and the crucifixion. That God became man in Jesus Christ, we are told by St. Paul, amounted to a process of self-emptying, and the choice of the cross was to be an example to those who would confess him as Lord. Prosperity theology can lead to the abuse of power and the marginalization of the poor. David Hills states in his book Power and Poverty, that poverty has to do with the way in which human beings use the power of God The power God gave us when he created us. The power that causes or prevents poverty is human power. The vast number of human beings in our day who suffer because of poverty is overwhelmingly the result of the ungodly use of power by other human beings. The gospel can be preached in ways that enrich the laws of people, but it could also be twisted for personal and pecuniary advantages. And it is interesting that the most, the people who benefit from the prosperity gospel most are those who preach it. In the new order brought by Jesus, the standard is sufficiency and surplus is called into question. And he concludes that the cult of prosperity thus flies full in the face of the whole New Testament. It is not biblical in any sense. Jesus touched the untouchable, drove out unclean spirit, and forgave sins, but his supreme act was to offer himself as an act of atonement for sin and to rise from the dead in proof of this. This calls us into action and challenges us to preach a life-transforming message that has both spiritual and physical implications for this life, but it must be remembered That Jesus was a modest man, and in the stories of the Good Samaritan and that of the unforgiving servant, he simply called on those who believe in him to extend a hand to those who do not have, that they might also feel the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. For we are all children of the covenant by his Spirit. Thank you very much for your attention. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at AfricanApologetics.org.